everybody. My name is Alexandra Rachitskaya. I'm from Cola Institute Clearing Clinic, and I'm excited to be here today for the new Retina Radio Journal Club that we're doing together with VBS. Uh, during these uh, journal clubs, uh, we discuss uh, the recently published papers, we summarize the paper for you and then have a little bit of discussion of what it means uh, for our practices. I'm delighted to be joined today by my friends and colleagues. And uh, first up, we have Mernali Gupta, who practices at Retina Associates of Orange County, California. Mernali, how are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And we have Eric Nudelman, who is at Shiley Eye Institute, UC San Diego. Eric, your weather is probably better than mine. How are you? Doing great. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful day. Thanks for, uh, thanks for including me. Of course. And uh, we have Aris Anos from a Legacy Devers Eye Institute in Portland, Oregon. Aris, how are things with you? Everything is going great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure to be with you guys here today. And we're going to talk about a paper that I think um, is very interesting and probably something that we see maybe weekly in our clinics. Uh, so uh, what we're going to discuss is one of the DRCR studies. And this is the study that looked at effects of uh, intravitreous aflibercept versus vitrectomy with PRP on visual acuity of patients with vitreous hemorrhage from proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And um, this is the paper with the lead author of uh, Andrew Antashik. And uh, as I mentioned, this is a DRCR retina network um, a study. Uh, it was published in December 2020 in JAMA. And I'm going to um, uh, let Aris summarize the paper uh, for us before we go into the discussion. Great. So um, the DRCR in this uh, protocol, protocol AB, uh, is mentioned, it, they compared two treatments, basically intravitreal, aflibercept, uh, compared to personal vitrectomy with uh, panretinal photocoagulation. They enrolled uh, 205 patients with uh, vitreous hemorrhage uh, from proliferative diabetic retinopathy. We should mention that the vitreous hemorrhage was uh, uh, varied in duration from less than one month to more than 12 months, with more than 80% of uh, both groups having a vitreous hemorrhage of less than uh, three months. Uh, also, uh, we should notice that uh, more than 50% of patients uh, had some form of prior treatment for either DME uh, or uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and that either included uh, panaretinal photocoagulation or anti-VEGF. And uh, patients were randomly assigned to one of the treatments, uh, and uh, the, uh, the aflibercept group received four uh, monthly injections, uh, whereas uh, the personal vitrectomy group had uh, surgery within, uh, within two weeks. Uh, the, also, uh, patients uh, could cross over to receive uh, an, an, the other treatment if the first treatment uh, had failed. The primary endpoint of uh, the, the study was the mean visual acuity letter score uh, area under the curve at, uh, at six months. And uh, the secondary, 24 weeks. Uh, and the secondary endpoint was the mean visual acuity at four weeks and two years. 
So the outcomes uh, of the study, uh, the outcomes of the study show that uh, at 24 weeks, uh, there was no significant difference between uh, in the visual in the mean visual acuity letter score between the two groups. However, at four weeks, uh, those in the postprandial vitrectomy with PRP group had significantly better vision. Uh, that was uh, 2100 for the aflibercept group. Uh, compared to 20 over 60 in the postprandial vitrectomy with PRP group. By two years, though, uh, both groups, though, had identical visual acuities, and that was uh, approximately 20 over 40. The, the study authors uh, concluded, uh, the, uh, we should mention that the study was powered to detect an eight-letter difference. Uh, and uh, they concluded that the study might, might have been underpowered uh, considering the range of 95% uh, uh, confidence interval to detect a clinically important benefit in favor of the postprandial vitrectomy and PRP group. Harris, that's a, that's a great summary. So maybe I can ask Eric on his initial impressions of the study when you first read it, what was your, what was your reaction? Uh, thanks, Alexandra. So first of all, I think that the DRCR should be congratulated for giving us another very practical uh, and clinically relevant study. Um, they've just been fantastic in giving, answering uh, uh, Long-standing questions in our field, um, and here's a, here's another one. Uh, most of the studies that looked at the um, uh, the differences between treating with anti-VEGF versus vitrectomy have been retrospective. So here's a prospective study, gives us clean data, um, and what we found is that um, it's roughly equivalent. So this this tells us that for patients that um, that are monocular, need to have quick vision restoration. Um, vitrectomy is a very reasonable option for patients who uh, have good vision in the other eye, um, uh, prefer not to go to the OR. It's totally reasonable to treat with an anti-VEGF and wait it out. Uh, it's it really um, helpful to know that ultimately the vision results are equivalent. Yeah, that it was it was probably a little surprising, you know, to, to see these results for me. Um, Renali, what are, what are your uh, kind of take home points on a first glance? Yeah, I think I would echo what Eric said. You know, the, the top line finding is that the long term outcomes are similar, whether you treat medically with anti-VEGF or you go to the OR. I think um, it's an amazing study. It's been a long time since we looked at vitrectomy and diabetic retinopathy and the uh, diabetic retinopathy vitrectomy studies were done in the 20 gauge era uh, before widespread endolaser application. So studying today's vitrectomy against today's gold standard medical treatment is really a, an important piece of data for us. And I think that most of us will um, probably use this data to um, individualize our treatment. As Eric alluded to, um, some patients may choose to elect for medical therapy, whereas others who might want to be rehabilitated faster uh, from a visual standpoint because they're monocular or work requirements or whatever, we might go to vitrectomy sooner. I think it's important to note that the, the anti-VEGF group did not get laser. Um, and so some of the findings don't echo what I personally 
do um, clinically when I medically manage these patients, which is I watch them or inject them with anti-VEGF. Um, and then when the view clears, I put laser in. And I wonder if that's why, um, although the visual outcomes are similar, the medically managed group had much higher rates of persistent NV, recurrent vitreous hemorrhages, TRDs mm -hmm. developing later on. Um, so so I, that leads me to wonder if part of that is the lack of PRP that was done, or part of it is the lack of removing that vitreous scaffold. And I think that remains to be um, seen uh, based on this study, but um, nonetheless an important study. So awesome, awesome comments and, and great summaries. So we're going to take a little break before we go and uh, a little bit more in-depth discussion on this study. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone, to the new Retina Radio Journal Cup that we're doing together with VBS. I'm Alexandra Rachitskaya, and I'm joined today um, by Mernali Gupta, Eric Nudelman, and Aristanos. And uh, we're discussing one of the DSCR Retina Network studies uh, that compared intravitreal aflibercept versus parsplenovitrectomy in patients with vitreous hemorrhage. And as mentioned, as was mentioned earlier, I um, I'm also very impressed how DRCR Retina Network has expanded uh, the types of studies they're doing. And the surgical studies are always hard to do. Uh, you know, they're much more involved uh, than some of the just uh, in-clinic treatments. So as we, as we think uh, about the study, uh, maybe I'll ask you, Aris, what do you think about the study design and um, anything that uh, you think could have been done differently to make it more applicable to our day-to-day -day practices? Um, yeah, so overall, the, uh, the study design uh, is uh, uh, it's, uh, very well uh, done. I think the main point uh, that I would like to raise looking at the, the, uh, the table with the baseline demographics of the patients is that uh, there is um, a significant percentage of type 2 diabetics uh, compared to type 1. It's uh, mostly 80% of type 2 and uh, in both groups. And um, looking back into the diabetic retinopathy vitrectomy study, uh, at least some important information that we got from this uh, study is that the vitreous hemorrhage, the outcomes uh, after vitrectomy between type 1 and type 2 diabetics are different. So, uh, and uh, certainly, uh, certainly in the era in, uh, of anti-VEGF, it would have been also very, very compelling uh, to see uh, how type 1 uh, diabetics versus type 2 um, with modern vitrectomy instrumentation, how do these uh, perform? And especially, uh, it's it would make a lot of sense, for example, in a young patient to uh, to do a complete vitrectomy with PRP to remove the scaffold uh, for new vascularization uh, and potentially treat the disease once and for all, um, compared compared to basically keep doing a serial anti-VEGF injections. So that's, uh, that's my, one of my the points that I would like to raise. 
So very, very good point, Aris. You know, I think when it comes to uh, diabetic population in general, um, these are very heterogeneous kind of uh, presenting patients. You can have patients with just vitreous hemorrhage, or you can have patients who have DME uh, that's hiding under the vitreous hemorrhage. And vitreous hemorrhage in and of itself, it can come from somebody just having NVD or somebody having actually fibrovascular proliferation, which is a very different kind of patient. And uh, as you mentioned in the study, for some patients, uh, their prior history was known, but not for everyone. And uh, it's, uh, if you don't have a view and you rely on ultrasound, uh, it's very hard to determine exactly what other issues are uh, going on with these patients. So I think that also might translate to some of the uh, adverse uh, events that were seen in the study, because uh, some of them were a little surprising to me if I think of, of just uh, my regular practice. Mernali, what did you think of the um, adverse events that were reported in the trial? Yeah, just as a, a, a quick summary of some of those. So the risk of a TRD when the view cleared, so spontaneously cleared in the aflibercept group or was cleared surgically, in the vitrectomy group was similar between both groups, it was 12 or 13%. The risk of a cataract or need for cataract surgery was similar between both groups, which I thought was interesting since uh, you know one group is getting vitrectomy surgery and that's something that's always on our mind, especially with young diabetics. Um, but there were some others where the groups differed. So um, the risk of finding a TRD later on in the course of the study was higher in the flibercept group, 9% versus less than 1% in the vitrectomy group. And again, I don't know if that's because the flibercept group didn't get PRP as part of their treatment. Um, and they were only getting, you know, 8.9 or nine-ish injections over two years, um, or if it's because the vitreous scaffold is still there. Uh, that's not clear to me. But there were some that were interesting. The risk of a new or worsening regmatogenous retinal detachment, I think, was in the 4 or 5% range, which I think is higher than any of us uh, anecdotally uh, feel uh, is the case with either medical or surgical treatment of these patients. Endophthalmitis was in the 1% to 2% range, which, again, is higher than what we quote for intravitreal injections or for patients undergoing surgery. So, um, just things that uh, are a little bit unusual that kind of draw our attention. And, and I'm not sure if those endophthalmitis were culture positive or were uh, sterile endophthalmitis in the setting of a flibercept or inflammation in, in a post-op patient or a task-like process, but uh, nonetheless, there, there were higher rates than clinically experienced of endophthalmitis in the study. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I think, you know, when, when you have a clinical trial, you, you kind of report what you see. And, uh, you know, it's, as you mentioned, anecdotally, that might not necessarily be the case. But once again, once somebody is assigned to an arm, you know, you, you continue with that, whereas in clinical practice, you can modify things um, from visit to visit. So thinking about how we uh, can apply the results of this trial uh, to clinical practice. So Eric, did it, did it change the way you treat the patients? What, what did you think um, uh, about your you know, everyday practice and the patients that you see with vitreous hemorrhage? Yeah, I, I thought it was actually quite close to um, how I generally approach patients with, uh, which, with vitreous hemorrhage, uh, diabetic patients with a vitreous hemorrhage. Um, I like that the study design allowed you to cross over. So the, the patients that were being treated with a flibercept that had a, a, a hemorrhage that uh, persisted beyond two consecutive injections were allowed to have a vitrectomy. 
um, and vice versa, the patients that had a vitrectomy that uh, had a persistent hemorrhage after surgery uh, could, could be uh, treated with an anti-VEGF therapy, which is, which is what I do. Um, so I, I think these were, were very um, uh, practical results. Um, and, and in terms of what I do with patients, I think it, it sort of validates the uh, approach I take which I mentioned early on is, you know, patients who require a, a faster recovery, if you want to hasten recovery, then I think surgery is, is, uh, is a great option. And for patients that prefer not to have surgery and can wait it out, uh, particularly if you're confident that there's not something underlying there that's, uh, that's dangerous, um, you know, with an ultrasound or, or with a limited view, uh, continue with it with treatment with an anti-VEGF is, is totally reasonable. Um, you know, there, there are of course those patients who have had a hemorrhage for a very long time um, and it's, um, it's dehemoglobinized uh, and that may be dense dehemoglobinized blood uh, in a young patient uh, with form vitreous. Those patients typically do not benefit from, uh, from continuing with an anti-VEGF therapy. And I, I generally prefer to go, uh, go straight to the OR for them. Uh, that wasn't really discussed in this paper, but I think we're all familiar with that scenario. Any other comments, Mernali or Aris? Aris, uh, how, does it change your practice at all? Um, I think more or less, um, especially in new patient who shows up in my clinic with a new vitreous hemorrhage, um, I, th I think I will, I will st still start with an anti-VEGF uh, one or two injections. And if the uh, hemorrhage doesn't clear, I will offer him the, the vitrectomy uh, procedure. But um, certainly um, from, from seeing it from another point of view, if a patient who has, it's the third or fourth uh, recurrent vitreous hemorrhage, uh, and then he's tired and he wants a quick recovery, uh, then I'll, I'll offer him again uh, vitrectomy. So certainly it's, uh, it's good to have a clinical, a randomized clinical trial uh, reinforce our uh, decision-making. So it's uh, excellent work. Nanali, any, any last comments? No, I, th I think it's a, it's a wonderful study, and I echo what Eric, Aris, and, and you've already mentioned, which is that um, it's nice to have some data to present to patients for, those, for that subset where you do go in early, um, whereas before we were kind of doing that because of you know, monocular status or bilateral hemorrhage or patient preference or, or whatever. It's, it's nice to have some long-term data to share with them to give them a sense of what their options are and what the outcomes are likely to be. I agree. And I think it really helps with uh, discussion that you have with the patient, as you have all mentioned, you know, you can phrase it in many ways, but ultimately if a patient comes with a vitreous hemorrhage, you can say, we can start with this kind of a step letter approach. Uh, we are going to try the injections. We know from the studies that 
a third of patients, approximately a third of patients will need surgery, but two thirds don't. So, you know, you kind of have that data to go uh, uh, on as opposed to, you know, just saying, oh, you, you might or you might not need surgery. So I think it's very powerful in that regard. And also the same way with the patients where you think they might need a sooner surgery, uh, you can also mention that, you know, patients uh, even after surgery might need additional uh, anti-VEGF treatments. So I think uh, it helps in that kind of discussion as I take it to my clinic. So uh, I would like to, to thank all of you uh, for participating and discussion, discussing this paper. And uh, I would like to thank all our listen listeners uh, for joining us for this uh, journal club that is done together um, by New Retina Radio and BBS. And please stay tuned for our future episodes. Thank you so much.